Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradz and I just want to comment on the beautiful weather that we've been having lately. I mean, Canada is obviously a wonderful country and the sunny days and 30 degree temperatures we're having right now in February are unexpected, but we're very grateful. I'm joking, obviously. <laughs> I've had enough of this weather. But anyway, um, Felix Wurzelman is a longtime Rockstar member. And I just want to explain something. I'll take this opportunity to explain how we work here at Rockstar because I think some sometimes people don't fully understand how we work. Here's how Felix fits into the picture. Felix was a longtime Rockstar Inner Circle member. He decided to go off and get his real estate license and join Rockstar Real Estate as someone who works with his own clients as investors. Primarily, he helps people buy investment properties all over the GTA as you're about to hear. We've been also working with him a long time before he got his real estate license and one of the coaches here at Rockstar were working alongside of Felix to help him do some of the things that he's been able to do with us. So as you'll hear he's been investing in real estate a very long time well before he met with us but then he became a member started working with um, one of the team members here at Rockstar and they became his coach and alongside them they're working side by side to buy some investment properties. He then went off and got his real estate license, knocked on our door and said, hey guys, I like what's going on at Rockstar. Can I join Rockstar as well? And we said, Felix, you're an investor. You think like we think. You're after the same things that we're trying to do with everybody. Of course you can join Rockstar Real Estate. So then he brought his real estate license to Rockstar Real Estate and he worked with his own clients, his own friends and family and clients. So he's not technically one of the coaches, what we call coaches here at Rockstar, but he does have his license here at Rockstar. He works with people. He's part of the greater Rockstar team. So within Rockstar, we kind of have these two things going on. We have a group of Rockstar real estate coaches that uh, work with Rockstar Inner Circle members and work with them on different investment properties and strategies on an ongoing basis. And in that capacity, we've done over a billion dollars in investment real estate right across the Golden Horseshoe. So we have about 14 coaches right now here at Rockstar. Um, all of the coaches are investors themselves. It's been a great gig. We are feel fortunate and grateful to be able to do this. And then we have this other category where people like Felix get their license and join on with us and they work alongside investors who they meet, their own clients and that kind of thing as well. So there's kind of like two things in one happening at Rockstar Real Estate. Sometimes people are not fully aware of that, but there you go. And on this podcast episode, you're going to hear Felix talk about some of his story that he went through, um, through university, um, through his job. He's actually a trained accountant and how he doesn't practice that at all, how he obviously has his real estate license, works alongside clients of his to buy great investment properties all over the Golden Horseshoe. You're going to talk, we're going to talk some history about real estate in the 1990s and kind of bring it all up to present day. We're also going to talk about some of his thinking on population growth in this area, some of his uh, latest investment strategies and some of his thinking on different cities around the Golden Horseshoe. And obviously a lot of it is aligned with it. A lot, sorry, I can't speak. A lot of it is in line with some of the thinking that Nick and I have, but he also has his own unique perspectives on how he's investing and what he's thinking and how he's working with his friends and family and clients and so forth. So great guy. We've known him for a long time. Um, he has a lot of information. We probably could have jam-packed three uh, podcasts into this one. Um, but I think if you are listening to this and you want to find out how Felix became a member, how you can become a Rockstar Inner Circle member yourself, you can go to rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. At that website, we list out all the benefits that we have as the Rockstar Inner Circle membership. You could check out all there, rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member is where to go to check out all the things that you get as being part of a Rockstar Inner Circle member. And with that, let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. All right, Felix, we are live. Felix, I don't want to butcher your last name. Felix... Vortsman? That's correct. Vortsman. That's correct. How, what nationality? Like, what's the ba ethnic background of that name? Pull the mic right into... Technically, it's... Felix, I just mentioned the mic there. Yeah, look, you went away. As I said, bring the mic. I think it went cl further away from you. So tell tell me, yeah, tell us. Where, where is it from? Technically, it's uh, Eastern European Heinz 57. Uh, I, I don't know I don't know if you know that type of nationality. It's a bit of Polish, a bit of Belarusian. 
uh, a bit of uh, Ukrainian, and that was born in the former USSR in the Middle East portion of the former USSR. Got it. Okay, I get it. The Heinz Fifty Seven. I get it. You're a mi you're. It's a mix of all different ethnicities from that area. Correct. Got it. The Heinz Fifty Seven of uh, USSR. For you, you came. Uh, you came to. You came to Canada when? At what age? Uh, almost seven. Almost seven. In you were, were you speaking perfect English when you got here? Hello. <laughs> so were you made fun of as a kid? Did you go through that whole air episode? Uh, yeah, yeah. There was, a, there was actually an interesting... Bring go. it nice and close. So I never went to uh, grade one anywhere. So I started up in grade two. And I came to Canada, knew no English whatsoever. And, uh, you know, started my school in, in, in September. And then they had this weird, wacky concept called Halloween. And I had a couple of Russian kids, basically, because I drew, grew up in the Russian area of North Toronto, near Bathurst and Steeles area. And uh, they had this concept of Halloween. So I'm like going, I was speaking to these Russian kids, and I'm, they're like going, yeah, you go out, you knock on people's door, and you say trick or treat, and they give you candy. I'm like going, nah. They go, yeah. This country is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it truly is full of milk, honey, whatever the heck you wanted. The streets are paved with gold and away you go. So I got so excited because they were going to be dressing up in in uh, in this grade two. And, I, and again, I barely knew any English whatsoever. I got so excited. And back in the day, you know, I was seven years old and I walk myself to school. It's like about a kilometer walk to school. And I get up real darn early in the morning, get up like at six o'clock in the morning I'm like thinking, okay, this is going to be awesome. Everybody's going to be dressed up at school. And I arrive at school at 7 a.m. and the doors are closed. The doors are just totally closed. And I'm like going, man, it's like an April Fool's joke. <laughs> Why were the doors closed? I'm, I'm, I'm I, just got, I just got to school too damn early. Oh, I was so it. excited. I actually oh, got out of bed. Oh God. I thought you were going to say it was like Saturday no, or Sunday no, no, or something. No, 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 no. Got it. No, it was just, so I went back and my dad was taking, uh, you know, ESL courses with a buddy of his. So I just spent the day with my dad, uh, my dad and his buddy, basically. Did you go trick-or-treating that night? I did. I what, did. What were you dressed up as? I don't know. I can't it's remember. A, it's, a, it's like, you, the, you just went trick-or-treat. Listen, in, in my neighborhood here in Oakville, I had some... Uh, kids, I guess, because there was new immigrants to Canada knocking on my door with their their uh, uh, costumes on. And one of the fathers, kind of in broken English from the sidewalk, he's yelling up to me, uh, why are we doing this? You know, why are we doing this? So, like, I guess the kids dragged him around doing this. He got younger kids. Didn't even know why they were going trick-or-treating. So I found myself explaining, oh, it's this kind of thing we do here. You knock on the door. Um, yeah, cool. So Canada is, I see Canada is a great country in many ways, but I, there's something I want to ask about you is, uh, at 24, you told me that you used, or no, at 23, you used OSAP money to go buy a property. So kind of walk me through this. You get an OSAP loan, which we all, cause my OSAP loans were much of my OSAP money was used for Mexican, uh, reading week vacations for myself and funding my buddies so that we could all go down there and have a good time. Sounded but a heck of a lot more fun. No, than no. You did the sure. much smarter thing. You did the much smarter thing. You bought a condo at 23 with OSAP money. Correct. This is brilliant. So, Correct. so walk me through this. So, um, the first year I went to university, we were, it was 92. We were in the middle of a recession, so I couldn't find any summer jobs to basically, uh, you know, save up for university. And I had to put myself through school. My parents were, yeah, you know, they were, they were not well to do. Uh, they got divorced basically in, uh, 86, 87. Um, so they didn't have the cash to basically put me through school. So what I intended to do was actually work and put myself through school. The only problem is you were smack in the middle of a recession. So I actually that found was a deep recession. Man, that recession was a deep. Yeah. I don't think anyone, if you're, you know, so I guess, how old would you have to be to, I guess it's going to be about our age. I'm 46 now. How old are you? 45. So we're, yeah, if you're younger than like 40, you probably have no recollection of like the deepest, darkest recession this country's seen. Or, and uh, I guess unless you go back to the depression, but that recession there, uh, there's stagflation in the 70s. So yeah, there's different things. But but that recession, um, none of my friends were working. Like We were all working the summer before. Everybody had jobs, construction jobs, retail jobs, bank jobs. That summer, we all sat in my backyard. N literally nobody was working. The only hours I got were from my my uh, CIBC teller job. I got Friday night and Saturday. Um, they kept those hours. Everything else was done. There was no construction. There was no retail. There was no jobs. We we're all just hanging out all the time. It was bad. Like that was really bad, for sure. And it, it was it, it was caused in, in part because of the downturn, the the economy, uh, the massive interest rates. 
Um, and also the automation. A lot of the AI started happening. So you have the bank ATMs, for example, coming out to your point, like you were working as a teller on CIBC, that was becoming an obsolete job for the most part. You know, uh, ATM machines just came out, you know, just in late, mid, mid to late 80s and catching traction at that stage. You think automation had that much of an impact back then? I think so. I mean, like you were right at the cusp of, you know, the internet era, which was coming in 94, you know, up to 99, that was its heyday um, and still continuing to this day. Um, but, uh, and, and a lot of, I remember when the internet, my first exposure to the internet as I was at university, university and someone, we're all hanging out. We had this area that we're all just hanging out. And, uh, one of my buddy's brothers, older brother says, does, do you want to see Cindy Crawford naked? And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, like, I'll, sure, I'll see Cindy Crawford. And they go, what are you, what are you talking about? Because he was all giddy over. It. He's like, come to the library with me. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell? He's, he's talking, explaining this thing, the internet and the way the pages would load. Remember how they would load? Yeah. Like it was literally pixel line by pixel line. So if you wanted to see any image come up, you were waiting there for like 10 minutes as this thing would for load sure. up there. For sure. But like we were like the last generation to go through university with no email and really not much internet experience. Actually, it was kind of interesting because we, when you and I both went to university, it was a very interesting time and a very interesting era because back then uh, the internet was just coming into being. I remember not forget about World Wide Web. Remember Gopher? There yeah, was oh, a, yeah, yeah. So yeah. there was Gopher. I never used, I just heard people talking about yeah. this Gopher thing. I think at the university, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so and, and we were talking about Bill Gates and everything. They're like, oh, yeah, within the next 10 years, everybody's going to have a chip in their brain and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and be able to communicate with each other just without any, without any cell phones. And cell phones were pretty, pretty new back then as well. So it was a really, really interesting time to be there. And uh, you felt like you were part of a revolution almost. You know, it was like really the last of the major revolutions out there apart from the, the Amazons of the world, you know, where you can actually feel like some sort of... Uh, Something big was happening. Yeah, and it was after the fall of the Cold, Cold War, you know, mm -hmm. the the, uh, the Iron Wall came down, and, uh, you know, you felt like it, a new beginning, which is, which is in contrast to what I see happening right now. Like, people are just giving up, you know. You, you, you don't feel people have this uh, great positive outlook on the future. Yeah, you don't think so. There's no, like, sign of... There's no big uh, hope spread throughout society right now yeah is that what you're thinking yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's it, i just find that people are finding it so much tougher to uh uh to make a go of it um you know to actually make something of themselves and, and the funny thing is they're more educated than ever before they have more access to this information to do whatever the heck it is that they want to do but they still feel chains kind of binding them and the chains are outside of their control um Unfortunately, is the, is the whole wages are not uh, keeping up with real inflation rates. Not not the government posted crap, but real inflation rates. Um, and to my point, actually, we were discussing this before. There was uh, an article last year. It's a bit dated, um, and it basically it was interesting from the perspective that it actually indicated, okay, what would it take? You know, remember Occupy Wall Street? What would it take to join the one percent uh, crowd in in some of the major cities in 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 Canada? And uh, I found that article really, really telling and kind of to my point in regards to why it's so damn hard for everybody. Uh, like in Toronto, for example, it's just around, and this is based on 2016 figures, of course, but, you know, numbers have not changed too much as far as wages are concerned. In order to be in the top 1% in, in Toronto, you would have to generate an income of about 303000 which is great. Uh, what's more telling is the fact that in order to be in the top 20%, which is still a really nice uh, you know, company to keep mid sixties, mid sixties uh, as a single income earner, and somewhere in the mid seventies for household median uh, me median household income. Now, if you're looking at the, the real estate prices right now in Toronto, uh, where even a condo is going for close to a million bucks, all of your income. Yeah, so the top twenty percent. If you were if you were lucky enough to be cannot, in the top twenty percent, cannot afford the average home. Yeah, it's it just blows my mind. Right. And and uh, Toronto actually is interesting because it's median uh, to be in the top 20 percent. Uh, it's actually a lower uh, threshold than places like Hamilton. They're there. It's about eighty seven thousand. But even within Hamilton, you know, people that are earning in the top 20 percent bracket are finding it darn hard to actually even get into the market, whether they're a buyer, whether they're they're a renter even. Right. Um, and that's not going to change anytime soon. 
Yeah, it's funny, and and I I love it when this topic is always discussed, and I and I share with people. I'm like, look, the system's just set up this way. Our Bank of Canada has a mandate to increase prices two percent a year. That means in your lifetime, in my lifetime, prices are likely going to double three times on us from start to finish because. And I'm probably being a little bit aggressive with that because it takes about 35 years at 2% to double prices. But from the time you're born, if you live to 150, I guess that would be 115. So I'm going and stretching it a little too much. So they're going to double on you two and a half times, let's say something like that. Guaranteed that's locked in and that's at 2%. If prices increase faster than that, prices are going to double on you faster. And and I almost feel like we need to take kids that are graduating from university right now and say, hey, look, or if you're entering high school right now and say, hey, look, look around the world right now at prices today. And these are not going to be the prices that you're going to be buying anything at. And of course, some things in technology will fall in price, but other hard assets, real things are going to go up in price. And uh, that perspective is never really taught it's never discussed everyone just walks around shocked that, that prices are up like how many times have you spoken to someone and they're like i cannot believe how, th- how, pri- how how expensive things are but the actual money system as the bank of canada has created in this country is mandated that this happens mm-hmm. yet everyone walks around politicians and media saying i cannot believe this is not fair to the middle class it's not it goes far beyond that uh, because that same 2% inflation rate, it's 1.8, 2%, whatever the heck it is. The problem is a lot of the fixed incomes that we have, the CPPs, the old age securities, any any social income that people get, are, are their income rises based on those inflation targets. Unfortunately, the real inflation rates, stuff like for, you know, stuff like we not only want, but actually need like food, <laughs> housing, clothing, transportation, all that has been spiking. And it's really, I mean, it's going to create a very dire situation. Uh, and we've, I think we're coming to a cusp where, you know, it's as bad, people think it's really bad now. It's going to get way, way worse. Um, Why do you think it's going to get worse? You just think the divide between the haves and have-nots gets, huge, gets worse? Huge, huge, Doesn't that every generation think that, though? Uh, and I think that this time is going to be a bit different. Because, you know, beforehand, when you had a steady eddy increase in, in prices of what people need. Steady eddy? Steady Eddie. Yeah. I don't know who the heck came up with that expression. That's fine. You go with it. Steady Eddie. Eddie. Yeah. There's a steady Eddie increase in prices. Somewhere, somewhere out there, there's okay, a steady yeah, Eddie. Yeah, you go. Um, you know, at one point or another, you know, their incomes are going up by 1.8 to 2%. And when we were growing up, you know, notwithstanding these big spikes, but then you had these big crashes down. But overall, things were kind of going at a 5 6% clip. Now you don't see that anymore. You see like hard assets like real estate, for example, going up by 5 10% a year. But people's incomes are only increasing by 1.8. So that gap continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. Unfortunately, at this point, I mean, people are like going, well, we're waiting for a crash. I'm like going, you guys are nuts. Because the reality is this. Even if things crash by 50% today like they did in the States, it would still be unaffordable. That's the reality. So what, I mean, what are you telling people then? Well, the situation, uh, like I said, I, I, I drink the same Kool-Aid as you. <laughs> uh, you know, you got to buy hard assets when you can. Um, I've, I've dealt with, you know, my parents used to tell me exactly what happened in Yugoslavia. It also happened in uh, the former USSR. They actually had to convert old rubles into new rubles. <laughs> and, and you just got screwed in the process. Yeah, they were telling me, they were telling me like, you know, the day after that they all converted, you saw these boxes floating in the rivers of like millions, <laughs> millions really, of rubles yeah. just flo- floating inside the rivers down there because they were actually totally useless because they'd said, okay, we don't care how much you have. You can only convert to a thousand. Yeah, got it. You're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was like a black market, and, and similar to Yugoslavia, again, they were basically trying to buy hard assets in order to get away from it. The people who failed to do that, I mean, they literally basically threw it out in the river. So going back to the OSAP stuff at 23, what was in your mind to take a loan from uh, in the form of OSAP? So if you're listening to this, you don't know what OSAP, but OSAP was a... The Ont- was it, I guess Ontario. Ontario uh, okay, neither of us know what it is. But it's basically plan. a loan that you would get from the government to help you out with school. And uh, you took yours and bought a condo. So walk me through that mindset. So, so because my parents were not earning a lot, I was actually taking out OSAP every year. Although technically, I didn't really need it. Right, so it was free interest anyway. I mean, why? Hey, my, it was free interest till you graduated, right? I think that's I think how it was. Six months after something you graduated, like yeah, or yeah. something like that. So, um, I, and, I, and at that stage, actually, when I actually started university, I was lucky enough in the fall to actually find a, a couple of jobs during the recession. So I actually worked about twenty to twenty-five hours a week uh, while attending university full time. I was actually able to pay all my education on my own without using the Good for you, Felix. Awesome. So, and, and so I got to the position where, you know, I finished university and I have all this cash on me. 
You know, and I'm thinking, okay, well, I can pay it back or uh, I can go buy a piece of real estate. And, and the reason that mentality kind of uh, got drilled into my head um, is something that happened in the past. So let me backtrack a bit. Um, number one, my parents actually bought their first place three years after coming to Canada. You know, one of these car accidents things, you know, before like no fault insurance, they got a payout, whatever, they got a deposit, uh, a down payment for a house, literally behind oh, wow. the private buildings we, we were living in. They got divorced, but uh, some of my parents' friends, they were actually investing in single family homes in the neighborhood. And uh, the reason why I kind of found out about this is every three to six months, we used to get this phone call from one of my buddies. He's like going, yeah, my mom needs some help. And what, what he meant by that is my mom has a broken appliance in one of her basement apartments. Uh, you know, these big Russian 1950s uh, models that weigh like a subcompact vehicle right now. And so she wants free labor. She wants you to come out there with uh, me, you and another three guys to lift up this bloody stove that weighs a ton uh, that can cause a hernia. <laughs> and uh, let's swap it out with a newer, newer used appliance that is equally as heavy. And uh, so we got these phone calls every three to six months to the point where, you know, I got curious. What the heck are you doing here? Why would anybody do this? And uh, so I spoke to them and they kind of explained to me, well, this is essentially how the numbers kind of work. And I got that. That was kind of ingrained within me. Uh, and during that time, after I finished university, I mean, like, you know, got my CA designation and kind of moved forward in the corporate life. Uh, got tied into the whole dot-com era bubble. I was doing some crazy stuff, you know. It's like you were up big and then you basically lost yeah, everything. We all were, yeah. And I was financing it all on credit cards. But you remember those 0% interest rate credit cards? Yeah, I was basically financing all my stock purchases on those zero-rate credit cards. And then as the, they were coming due, I got a new offer for 0% for the next 6 to 12 months. So I was literally flipping this stuff around. And what really, really bailed my butt out, first of all, I bought that condo. And uh, five, uh, just over a year later, we we decided to renovate it. We bought it for 119, rent put five grand. Where did into you buy it? it? Uh, Steels in Young area. Okay, for 119. This would be roughly the year 96. Okay, 96, near the end of 96. Uh, we dumped about so prices had stabilized in Toronto yeah, at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah they were they were stabilized and they were starting to swing back. No, no, they north. were they were still just like basically flatline. Yeah, yeah. It was like kind of a balanced market. I mean, people were kind of shy. Yeah, that was the beginning. Ninety six was like the beginning of this longer uptrend yeah. again. Well, it almost took like a ten year period almost to the point where people got kind of they got spooked during uh, the major correction that happened yeah. in the late eighties and nineties. They started kind of trickling back in. Because there were people my age now looking for apartment uh, housing, uh, not just basically our parents. You basically, 96, you timed that pretty well. That was pretty much the bottom. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and we dumped five grand into this thing, um, pulled out 143 out of it, and but still lost 5,000 after real estate commissions. Sorry, you, so you bought it for 119. Dumped 5,000. 5, and you refinanced it much? We, we, didn't, we didn't refinance it. I sold it. And the reason why oh, I okay, sold it is it. I'm like going, wait a second, all this money's coming out of my pocket. This doesn't make any sense to me. So instead, I decided, why don't we just sell this thing and buy a semi-detached with a basement apartment? Is that what you did? That's exactly what I did a year later. But I took a $5,000 hit, 5000 I didn't have before, in order to sell that condo. And we had to put more renovations into the into the semi as well. And we were renting out to students. And back then, we were renting out. You were saying we. This is you and your family doing so this? So my dad and I basically bought this awesome. thing. Awesome, okay. Um, I came up with most of the down payments. Sure. But yeah, he, he, he had a credit rating. I did not yeah, when yeah, I came yeah. out of university. So I needed somebody to actually uh, give, give me the mortgage. And uh, the students were literally covering about 90% of all of our carrying costs. So it was awesome. Where were the students going to school? What school? Uh, they were going to college, either Seneca. Some of them were international. Some of them were going to York. Um, and uh, we were renting this puppy for like 400 to $600 a room like back then. Oh, wow. Where was this? This is in Dufferin and Finch area. Yeah, got uh, it. Okay. Okay. Around that area. Yeah, yeah. So the right right yeah. next to yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. bus lines. And uh, it was amazing. And oddly enough, like when I met, met my wife and we moved in together... I lost about a hundred grand on the stock market because of speculating on the dot com era. And what bailed my butt out is actually real estate because I bought that house for two twenty three in ninety eight, uh, early ninety eight, and sold it in two thousand four for three forty three. Yeah, got it. Good for you. And, wow. And that and that kind of uh, totally basically saved my butt. And since then, I'm like going, okay, this is a great idea. Let's start looking elsewhere. So I was looking around the same neighborhoods. Back then, it was a, it was the kind of the golden period to be in the GTA. You could have picked up like fully detached bungalows, you know, for like this is like grand. 2004. Now you're talking 2004. Oh I was just having this conversation with my wife that our first home, I guess, our first family home, like non-rental property home, 
um, I think we purchased it in 2002 or 2003. Let's say 2002. 268000 in Mississauga. Four-bedroom, two-car garage. That yeah, was awesome. $268,000. Yeah. And I remember signing ago. the papers, and I was telling my wife, I'm like, well, someone's got to buy at the top of the market. Might as well be us, <laughs> you know? And I'm signing these papers, fully convinced that, like, this thing is never going up higher because about a year earlier, friends of ours had bought a very similar home from a Mattamy subdivision at, like, 223 And now one year later, it's 268 We had not seen these types of real estate moves oh. in, like, you know, over 10 years. For sure. So when I saw this, I was having flashbacks to 1990 and, you know, I still bought it. My, I knew we needed to have our own place, newly married, had to get a home. We were living uh, with my dad. Our parents had separated at that point um, over real estate. Uh, that's a little bit of our life story. Our parents weren't together a little bit because yeah. of some real estate uh, horror, you know, the, basically 1990 that went through. They're back together now. Um, but uh, so we were living with my father and Carol was like, after, I guess, two years of this, and we were able to save a lot, obviously. But after two years, I was just getting a strong hint from her that it was time to get our own home. <laughs> so we had to buy this thing. At, uh, yeah, so it would have been about 2002 then um, for 268000 You're right. That era was, was the golden, golden era. era. Yeah. Oh, Your incomes were high enough yeah. and, and you could, yeah. everybody yeah. could afford it. Worked. it. Yeah. Even though, even though it freaked the crap out of you because you're like going, man, that, that's how much like the top of the market was back in the 80s because that's, that's how long it took to get back up there, right? It took about 15 years, right? So when we were like buying these things, we we're like thinking, holy crap, that's how, that was the top of the market yeah, back in the late definitely 80s. Is. I had convinced myself that was the top of the market. Yeah. 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 And we remember, like we were old enough to remember that time as well. And uh, we... My wife actually went one step further. We she bought in within a new subdivision near uh, Dufferin and the Highway Seven area, and for three hundred and sixty-five k. So that was a lot of money back then. What what kind of house? It was like fully detached, over th three thousand square feet, yeah. two car garage. Oh the same, yada, yada. Oh, if you went over three hundred thousand dollars back then, oh, was that was like you're a millionaire. Oh, you yeah. must be. You guys must be millionaires. A million dollar house yeah. meant something yeah, back yeah, then, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the house across the street, they, they were actually single car garage and they were going for 250. So get this, we basically get into this thing. By 2004, the first seller across the street, one car garage, 1,800 square feet. He bought it originally for like 250 and we're selling it for 325. And I'm thinking exactly the same thing as you. I'm going, man, he must have gone on like at the top. It can't go up any higher than this. And it was, and funny thing is, as you mentioned, it was just the, the very start of when the boom was uh, started happening. And there were a lot of naysayers. Remember this guy named uh, Garth uh, Turner? I think? Oh yeah, I read all his books back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He, he was saying the real estate market was going to actually. Uh, he had a big influence on me because I loved all his loved yeah. all his material. I thought it was well thought out, well written. Um, really had a really big impact. But then when the market didn't go down. Um, by a year like 2008, 2009 is when I really thought, I need to figure this out because the, the guy was making a lot of good points, but the real estate market didn't do what he said was going to happen. So he goes, I'm not, I'm obviously missing the bigger underlying fundamentals of the real estate economy. That's what got me into interest rates and monetary policy and fiscal policy, trying to understand all this stuff. But yeah, I remember that. That was when sure. a whole bunch of people like him were saying, this market's going to tank. And you're just buying for the first time, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. like going, man. Yeah, great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, but to your point, it's, it's very, it was very important to actually to, to do pull that. Pull the mic, pull the mic. Don't be scared of it. Pull it to you. To me. Yeah, yeah, okay. there we go. <laughs> um, to your point, it's, uh, you know, it, it underscored the point that you actually had to do your own research. You found that you had a lot of so-called experts that, uh, you know, were, the reality was not basically coinciding with what, what the heck they were saying. Um, so you had to do the, your own research. And, you know, so you wanted to get that in-depth knowledge in order to make that decision for yourself. And it took, it took me years to do it. Right. And to the point where at this stage, I'm like thinking, OK, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, what the benefits are of, of doing real estate as long as I have and as long as you have. Obviously, you have much more clarity in regards to what's driving the market. Um, and especially because I deal all across the greater Golden Horseshoe and I have properties all across the greater Golden Horseshoe. I don't deal with microcosms. You know, sometimes you get into these uh, cities and the real estate agents within that city have this mentality that, oh, my God, the market cannot go any higher. We've been acclimatized through this because we've dealt with all of this in the GTA years ago, you know, and then you're basically taking it, that, that formula and that price spiking going into these other municipalities and they're like thinking, oh my God, this is the height of the market. 
prices. So you mean go. if you're in like a smaller place like Brantford, Ontario, and people yeah. from Brantford think prices cannot go any higher, but you're from Toronto saying, hey, I've seen this story before. People are moving Correct. in here. I know that my interest rates are low. I know how this is going to work. And it's purely an affordability play. The reason why I'm saying it's a, cl it's a clarity, uh, uh, pers uh, you get this perspective, is because at the end of the day, nobody can afford to live in Toronto. I mean, I just give you the numbers. The numbers are actually better in some of these other municipalities. Way better. You know, Hamilton, I think their average uh, to be in the top 20%, you have to earn 87,000 versus Toronto's 76 or 72,000, right? So the numbers actually have worked better in Hamilton. But even there, you know, people are going, and, and you remember buying in Hamilton for the first time, you oh. know, buying whole properties, you know, turnkey, and, you know, it came with hot tubs, saunas, you know, they, people had cash to burn. That's why they had all of these toys, right? Uh, in Toronto, it's like, no, <laughs> it's like no frills. Um, so now that you have this clarity and you see this demand basically coming into the area and you see what's driving the prices and you're seeing what, what's, what's happening and the, the, there's a lack of supply, um, then you can jump into these things, you know, with confidence, with confidence. I was just going back and forth with a friend of mine to literally today who was just asking me what the population numbers in Ontario. And cause I was just mentioning, I think in one of our rockstar minutes or something that the population, the last 12 months at the end of Q3 last year in Ontario had grown 257,000 people. And, um, Toronto, the population of Toronto, I'm pretty sure is like 2.7 million people. So, which means in the next 10 years, roughly there's another Toronto moving into Ontario. It's likely coming into the Golden Horseshoe area because that's where the sure. bulk of people come here. So think about that. Over the next 10 years, if I told you, hey, Felix, another city the size of Toronto is coming here bit by bit over the next 10 years. In ten, If you don't take action now, you're just going to wake up 10 years from now and look around and go, what the heck happened? Right? And th this assumes this population trend is going to continue. Right. So we have to assume that people are still going to want to come here and not all of a sudden people don't come here. But it seems like, if anything, Toronto's getting to be a more popular place to arrive into in Canada, not a less desirable place. So yeah, some of these communities that you're going to, it's like we've seen this story before. You've got before. population coming in here like crazy. You guys don't even get it. And, and it's really economics what it what. I mean, like either, I mean, the government can do one of two things in order to stop this from uh, progressing even further. Like we have an affordable, lack of affordable housing crisis in, in, in the region. They can either turn off the tap on demand, which is basically stop the immigration, or increase the tap on supply. And the four government, everybody was afraid, oh, they're going to open up the green belt and everything else. Now they've shut that down. So in other words, the green belt stays intact. They might look at maybe a couple of pockets here and there, and that's it. Yet at the same time, we have this massive demand still coming into this uh, into the region. Um, interestingly enough, I was uh, I was actually at a meeting with the parliamentary assistant to the Minister of Housing uh, just before New Year's. Uh, really, really fascinating story. How did you get yourself into that meeting? So it was uh, I've known. So if you're listening to this, I know I've uh, known feelings. I've known each other for a few years now, and I could see that if that opportunity came up, somehow you uh, jumped all figured over out a way to <laughs> invite yourself into that meeting. Actually, actually, I'll they know they. Uh, so it was Kayla um, Andra uh, from uh, Ontario Landlord Watch. She actually invited me. She actually loved uh, my commentary there and the insights I provide on Facebook with respect to a lot of these articles, awesome. right? Awesome. And she's like going, you know what? You could provide a bit of benefit to them and kind of, you know, pr provide some so sort of like logic and common sense to these politicians. And uh, we came up with, um, and I told her, you know what? We should not be going into these things going rah, rah, you know, all the landlords are getting screwed, you know, and tenants are basically tearing things apart. No, we're, we're there to provide them with solutions because at the end of the day, that's what the governments are re uh, require. Um, before I left, oddly enough, I told her, <laughs> I go, if you guys are not going to be in the business of actually doing housing, so actually let me backtrack. We sat down with them and I said, okay, we know you guys don't have the funds to, uh, to increase the supply of social housing. I know you guys, so we'll, we'll act, we can actually provide solutions where we can actually fund, find the funding to you, for you guys in other areas by making things more efficient. Uh, we talked a little bit about Landlord-Tenant Board and uh, there was actually some, um, um, the, the parliamentary assistant actually uh, ad advises that they were actually thinking about uh, giving a, se a totally separate rules uh, under the RTA to small landlords versus the multiplex, the big landlords as well. So maybe a two-tiered huh. system, uh, which is really interesting. And at the same time, the, I think I got the sense that they wanted to get the heck out of social housing altogether because they're doing a really poor job to manage it and run it, and there's a lot of corruption in the whole thing. So I think that uh, the government is looking for ways to kind of privatize a lot of this stuff. And uh, as you've seen in the articles recently, you've seen that happening in all areas of, uh, of what they're trying to do. And uh, so I left her with one thing just before I left. I go, listen, you know, I'm, I live in Vaughan. 
I don't invest in Toronto. I haven't invested in the GTA in the last 10 years because the numbers clearly don't work for me. The, the people that do invest there, for the most part, are speculators. Uh, unless they're doing some weird, wacky stuff. Or unless like you're paying cash. Or, or if you're paying cash. Yeah. But, right? but, but, but like with my clients, I always used to usually tell them, okay, it's like when you invest in real estate, you invest where you can maximize your returns and minimize your risk. Right. You live where you want to live, but you invest where you maximize your returns and minimize your risk. And that's true with any investment, not just real estate. And by that metric, GTA does not make any sense. It's purely driven by speculation. So I told her what happens when that speculation basically exits the market. Like right now you have condo owners, private investors. They're basically um, holding up the fort with, with regards to supply of rental stock in the market for people who clearly cannot afford to buy. What happens when those speculators are basically Shut down the market. market. Okay. What happens to the supply of housing in that situation, right? While the demand is still coming into the region, right? I think we're. Yeah, what did they say? And I go, no answers. (laughs) There's no answers. It's funny. There's no. It's funny that like investors can be chastised as like, you know, greedy. um, But in Ontario, people who've been buying condos have basically replaced apartment buildings entirely um, at this last event that we did. Um, do you remember that slide that Nick put? Did you see that slide that Nick put up? Were you at the event, Felix? Yes. You were. Yes. Uh, that Nick put up where that uh, until the Tenant Act came out, apartment buildings were built quite, you know, in quite good volume all over the greater Toronto the 60s, area. 70s, yeah, and then the, the Tenancy Act came in into the late 70s or wherever that did. I don't have the date in front of me and I don't recall it. Um, but then all of a sudden, rental property development just kind of vanishes mm-hmm. and there's no Toronto condo scene. But then you can see the Toronto condo Come come in and basically replace rental property, uh, rental apartment buildings as the new rental property, and without these investors buying these things, there's literally no rent. There would be no supply. Well, this uh, stage about what is it, forty to sixty percent of our cash flow negative on our investments right now. Like it's already yeah, if you're happening buying now. It's, yeah, it's yeah, already yeah. happening, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So any new rental stock that's coming in is becoming. Yeah, big. people are just hoping rent goes up so that when the, in a few years they'll be cash flow positive on those. I think that we're pretty much at the cusp, unless you basically have the speculators still staying in the market. And we saw exactly what happened with the Liberals' fair housing plan. Uh, it totally decimated the whole detached to the housing market, right? And the reason why it's not going up anymore. Right now, it's stabilizing. You know, it's starting to turn around to the point where condo prices have come up to such an extent that the gap between the drop in price of the detached homes and the gap uh, and and the rise in the condos is getting to the point where people are going. You know what? For an extra hundred grand, I might might as well get by myself a low rise unit. Right? It's going to be costing me a million bucks. By low rise, meaning you mean like a, a house, a, a townhouse, maybe yeah, you know, yeah, a stacked yeah. townhouse, that sort of yeah. stuff, right? Because there was a huge gap. There was like the, the price of condos did not go up at all. Most people don't know they didn't. The average price of a condo price in Toronto did not go up for five full years between 2011 to the first Q1 of 2016, and the only reason why they're probably going up at this stage is because it's not people. It's not that people don't want detached houses. It's like clearly they can't afford it. Every single study that I've seen so far, you know, even with millennials. They prefer fully detached. They simply cannot afford it. So right now, I think it's a function of people uh, throwing out the baby with the bath, bath water, where they're basically saying, okay, I can't afford a detached house anymore. What can I afford? Oh, it's a condo. It's not something that I need. It's, it's not something that meets my requirements, but it's my last and last opportunity to get into the real estate market before I totally get priced out of it. And I think that's what's been driving the whole market since. But eventually, I think we'll come to that plateau. Remember, incomes are not rising as quick. And by the way, I think we're going to say that story to ourselves 10 years from today about yeah. all of the golden horseshoe. For sure. Like I literally think if, if this population rate keeps up, we're going to have that about the whole golden horseshoe where we say, oh my gosh, can any of us buy really anywhere at this point across the golden horseshoe? Um, So when you're working with investors then, what are you telling them? Because some of the investors you're working with are probably live in Toronto, I'd imagine. Are you having to educate them about other areas? Like how's that going over? For sure. Because I find when we talk to people about other areas and if I bring up like Hamilton, which Hamilton's like, the story's out on Hamilton, it's a great place, but they think that like, really? Hamilton's a great area? And then, so never mind bringing up like Kitchener or St. Catharines or Brantford or, you know, God forbid you say Welland or anything like that. People are like, what the heck? But uh, some of these communities are as an investor great areas phenomenal phenomenal. so are are you having to educate you find for for sure especially with the uh, recent downturn in the detached home markets people feel that toronto is the market and it applies all across the region and you have to kind of educate them saying yeah there was a correction in toronto of the low rise houses but guess what we're at all-time highs again in a lot of these markets and those markets certainly went down. Yeah, down. you might not know this. Last week, uh, we had on a property in Brentford, somebody on the Rockstar team here, 19 offers. 
multiple holding offers, 19 offers on a property. I had one in St. Catharines that I was looking into. I think it had about 12 offers last week. Uh, 12, but again, you, you could see the price. You know, sometimes clients would say, "Oh, what do you think of this one?" I'm like, "Going, you know, if it's yeah. if it's too good to be true, you know, it's the, too the, good to be true." And and I remember the height of the market. That's what we were experiencing, even in the Niagara region. I mean, we were 14 offers, whatever. The market is not as crazy as it used to be at this particular stage in time, but we're seeing that uh, happening. So, again. what are you what are you helping people with, or what, talk about one of your properties that you're, you're working on? Give us paint the picture for someone listening to this who's not familiar with it. So, right now, so as you know, I started up with RTOs. Um, you know, did really well. That's right. Them. Oh my gosh, we've known each other a long time, yeah, Felix. Was, Holy smokes! Uh, I don't know. Do I still hold the record still for that? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure you yeah? do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I, I, I'm always curious. I'm like going, not that it matters, whatever. But I'm kind of curious. Like I remember sitting in that meeting, going, "Okay, uh, we know somebody that got fifty grand in, yeah, down, yeah. in, the, in deposit." And I'm like going, "Nah, that's that just like doesn't happen." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it happened to me, so it was it was kind of interesting. So that kind of allowed me to accelerate uh, my portfolio. But what am I telling clients is, listen, you're catering to a person's not want but need. If you have a five person family and you need a house, you cannot and you cannot afford Toronto. Then you're still you. It, it's almost like dropping a stone in the water in the middle of Lake Ontario and saying, okay, take those ripples and show me the place where where it lands where I can actually afford. And that's essentially what's happening. So if you need a house with five bedrooms, keep on going. Your income is a set amount. Where do you have to go in order to afford that house? So you're catering to a person's need as opposed to want. And as a result of that, anything that you're looking in these regions, technically speaking, is recession-proof, right? Because because it has nothing to do yeah, with it. they need to live somewhere. They need, they need a roof over their head. That's all we're providing. We're providing nice roofs over their head. That's a different story. The other thing is, from a, from a strategy perspective, I'm following the trends. Baby boomers are retiring. Younger population are finding it a hard time to basically buy properties. So what within the marketplace would work for both of them? And typically speaking, it's usually uh, single family to two-year conversions, where you have mom and dad living on one floor, younger family living on the other, or vice versa. You have an older mom and dad and, and an even older uh, set of parents that can't afford to live in a retirement home. And I'm seeing massive demand for those type of properties basically happening all across the region. Um, clearly, out further further outfield out of Toronto because nobody can afford to live here anymore, right? And even duplexes here are, are ridiculously expensive. Uh, I even have clients that f- their first property ever, their first time buyers, um, some of them are living in basement apartments, and their first property they ever purchased were actually an investment property that's actually uh, subsidizing their living cost in, in the GTA, which is yeah, amazing. Yeah, we see that a lot now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, this is awesome. Yeah, because We never saw that before. No, no. Yeah, yeah. But it's a smart move if you think mm-hmm. about it, right? Because you don't let the market get away from you. At the very least, at least you have, you, you have your foot in the door as opposed to trying to say, hey, I, you know, that's it. I'm done. Uh, you know, I'm in the GTA. I can't afford it, right? So it's, it's actually a really, really smart move, and I'm really, really proud of them. Um, takes a heck of a lot more of handholding, <laughs> you know, obviously it's their first property. And then of course the apprehension with the, with the, with the investment side of things. So you see a lot of the first time buyers moving there. You see a lot of, uh, and, and to, to my point, I have some clients that are like going, okay, well, what's happening with the housing market, you know, here, what do you think is going to happen? Um, in, in the GTA, it's again, the law of economics 101. I think we'll head, we'll, we'll head a plateau in the GTA, just like in any major city like San Francisco, New York, Seattle. Uh, we'll get to the point where, where the market can no longer bear to, to uh, those prices. And the funny thing is the out, other outlying areas like the Hamiltons of the world, the St. Catharines, the Brantfords are going to benefit. Yeah, we didn't talk about Durham region as well, but oh, of yeah, course out there for as well. Sure, yeah. For sure. They're, they're all going to benefit because they're, they're still going to be within the realm of affordability, even as GTA caps out, just like New York has capped out. If you want to basically live in any of these cities, you have to pay a hefty premium to do so. So it's going to be the, that gap we were talking about, the, the haves and haves nots, is just going to widen, widen even further. Uh, the other thing I'm working on right now is, to my point with uh, the, uh, uh, I do the two-unit conversions. I, 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 on top of that, I remember the heyday in Toronto, like when people started investing in properties. I saw around my buddy, my buddy started buying after me. So they saw that I was doing well, so they actually started buying properties as well, So which is really cool. And one of them bought around the Shepherd and Bathurst area. And there was this gentleman there that used to buy all these corner properties. He used to buy two properties. They were like 140-foot lots. And back then, he used to basically just buy the two, two properties next door to each other and then sever them and actually create a third lot basically down there and build a house. And that always kind of stuck in my mind, even before I actually started. So you know, he was buying two side-by-side lots, but then... One the, of them being a corner. One of them being a corner, that's what I was going to yeah. say. And then going around the side and severing that the backyards yeah. off to create another lot. Yeah. 
and then yeah. keeping the other two houses or selling them off and building like one of these monstrosities essentially down there that you see everywhere. And uh, so that always kind of stuck with me. So anytime I look at investments, I'm always looking at ways, how the heck can I improve uh, the use of this property going forward? Uh, either today, like I, I have a term that I like to use myself. I don't know if I've coined it or not. I call it subsidized land banking to the point where if you can find a property like that, and even if you can break even, forget about cash flow, but if you can get cash flow bonus, but if you can break even on it and it has development potential sometime in the future, you're golden, right? And it's, it's subsidized. Nick and I bought a property like that in Oakville about five years ago, and it breaks even purely for that because yeah. we know it has a development play. So we wanted it, even though it wasn't a super cash flow property, it pays for itself. We're just going to land bank that thing, and then we'll get to it when we get to it. Subsidized yeah. land banking. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Uh, so the other interesting project that I was working on, like uh, having that mentality in place. So I've, I've been going through Niagara region as of recently, and I found this one property that I'm like looking at, I'm like going, holy crap, this is a big four level side split. And it was about 1400 square feet. And I knew that when I went in there, I'm like going, yeah, I can convert this into a two unit, no problem. And then I'm, the wheels started turning, I'm like going, but can I do three? Because I'm like thinking, okay, a typical two bedroom condo in Toronto is six, 625 square feet to 650. And I got about 700 square feet to work with on each level. So think of it as a, as a rectangular box. And what would it take to do to make it happen? So I actually did some research, and lo and behold, the city actually allowed me to do so. And uh, I'm like going, okay. So you were zoned properly that you could take a single-family home? No, no. no. Actually, the municipality that I was dealing with, zoning was kind of irrelevant. Uh, they were much more lenient than some of the other municipalities. Where, where, where is this one? This one is in Welland. Okay. Okay. So they're okay with you just chopping it up into three? Okay. Well, you, again, the way that they kind of had to term it uh, was was a bit different. So you technically you converted it into two and simultaneously you could add a third unit. The third unit, they need development charges for, though. Got it. Okay. So I think it was like about 10 grand or something. But still, I mean, like if you're looking at it, it's like no-brainer. Yeah, right? Got it. Because that third unit, I mean, you're using the existing floor plan of the entire house. You're not adding any walls. You're not adding any floors. You're literally using the existing house. Uh, you could gut everything in the middle of the walls, whatever, but then you can basically create whatever units you, you effectively want. And um, by doing so, create three separate units. So I have a three-bedroom, 1,400-square-foot unit on the main floor, the first two levels. And below each of these levels, the bedroom levels and the main floor level, I have two two-bedroom units with laundry, with uh, brand new bathrooms, with brand new kitchens, one of which we're actually going to be testing out as uh, an Airbnb for short-term rentals. Um, and that one's going to be pretty interesting. So I, I like... So you're going to rent out the... What will you rent out the 1,400 square foot main top floor it's unit. already rented we rented it out for 1750 plus hydro 1750 plus hydro the second unit you're going to rent out for currently listed for 1495 you, so what do you think you're going to get in the end you're 1450 hoping, let's call it okay I'm, I'm getting a lot of interest it's just a matter of basically people getting their heads around you know condo style living but in a house yeah, without any of the negatives of got it so i'm trying to market it that way so i get about 50 percent. and the then interest. you're going to airbnb the third unit the third so unit. on a monthly basis what do you think give me a range or a just yeah. as a straight rental, if I was... Okay, yeah, as a straight renter, let's uh, say. A uh, rental, forget them. the Airbnb. Without the Airbnb, I would probably say around forty-three to $4,500 a month. Forty-three to forty-five. You bought this thing for how much? Three eighty-seven. Three eighty-seven. Dumped about $125,000 into okay. it. Are you going to be able to refinance it at yeah. some point? We're, we're planning on refinancing. Hopefully, this will be a home run, Which in which case we're going to be pulling out all of our renovation costs for sure. And hopefully the vast majority, if not all of our initial investment, and maybe even then some. So in other words, pulling even more equity out of it. Um, okay, so you would have a zero money down deal at that point because you pulled everything out. Correct. Maybe even a little bit of equity, go do something else with. Yep. And, and uh, it would still cash flow at that point because at 4300 is it going to cover its costs? Uh, it'll cash flow minimum $2,000 a month. And Two 2000 a month. After all expenses. Yeah, good for you, man. And uh, with the Airbnb, possibly up to three. Okay, but not done yet. You're thinking this is how it's going to play out. Um. Well, listen. Worst case scenario, it's two two thousand a month. You can take that to the bank, mm -hmm. because I know I can basically even even if I were to rent out the the two yeah, 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 new levels it. for thirteen fifty, it, it'll cash okay. out two grand a month. So you're just thinking with Airbnb, uh, you're going to be able to generate more. Yeah. So the way I with work, the Airbnb, you think it's worth it for you because you're going to have to get you, how long will the rentals be on that Airbnb unit? You think you don't know? I, I don't know. Yeah, you won't know. Um, but 
you uh, are going to then have to clean it more regularly, hire somebody out there? Yeah, listen, I mean, the way I kind of operate with all my properties and any, any new location that I invest in, I, I, as I mentioned, I invest in several municipalities. I'm a bit different that way. Some people like to focus on one municipality. I have places in Barrie, Brantford, Hamilton, all over Niagara region. And uh, you have to set up good teams within those municipalities. I still manage all my properties myself. Awesome. You know, doing doing you know working full time mm-hmm. as well um, as a, as a, both an investor and, and a realtor. And um, do you do accounting stuff? You're you're trained. No, 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 no. I don't. No, I, I don't. Oh wow. Forget, I know enough don't to be dangerous. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, people ask me all the time. Do you do tax returns? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been a very proactive individual. The thing about accounting, it, it was great as 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 a baseline, you know, like it gives you great business kind of knowledge, but it's backwards thinking because think about it. If, if you're an auditor, you're always reporting on what happened in the past, you know, looking in the future. And I'm a very future-oriented type of uh, individual. And uh, so, yeah, no more, no, no, none of that accounting stuff anymore. But what I like to do with myself is I use myself as the proof of concept. So I will actually go out there, take the risks necessary. If it's a new area, I'll buy the place myself. I'll renovate it. I'll actually test out the market. And then and only then, if it works and I know that it's works, then I'll bring my clients up. So my clients are literally going, following me around, like saying, okay, oh, you've gone from Barry, where are you going next? I go to another place, right, um, to the next place. So they're investing literally like side by side with me. So they it, it brings out a lot of confidence in them and it enables me to prevent them from making very costly mistakes as well. And they see the proof of concept. Like I, I actually have uh, verifiable proof that, that this is doable, right? So... Um, it's smart when we were when I remember when Nick and I were testing out different areas because for a while we were just in the Hamilton area and when we th- at one point this is going to sound funny now but at like 2009 I think we thought we'd saturated Hamilton we were like oh my gosh there's just no much more, more opportunity in Hamilton like everybody thinks like oh my gosh sure. the opportunity's passed and we would run ads in different areas I remember running ads up in Barrie testing out like we didn't have rental property up there but we were testing out hey you know a three bedroom house and this is when you have to pay for classified ads just yeah. to test to see if we get the lead then if we got leads on the on rental property ads, then we would kind of go and work up there and buy property up there, um, and that's kind of how we explored and did a little proof of concept. That's what I showed. But we done. always tested to see there was demand first. We were too scared to go and buy the property. Excellent. Um, so we were that was our little test, you know, testing that will the phone ring. I remember telling Nick, Nick, we're getting calls on that property. He's like, okay, good. I think we can buy something in the area. For sure. But, uh, that was our little safety mechanism for ourselves to protect ourselves first. You sound like you just went in and bought the property. In well, the it's, it's not jumping with two feet in. Yeah, with, no, you, had, you, were, you remember I was telling you, like, when we started off this conversation, it's all about having that clarity in regards to what you're doing, right? And we, if you know what's driving the real estate market and what's coming down the line, there's full clarity. Like, even during the downturn in 2017, I think you were taking a bit of more of a cautious approach back then. I, I wasn't. I actually took that time where my, some of my clients t- took a step back with cautiously seeing what was happening in the GTA. I actually, why, t- why do you say we were taking a cautious approach? What were we doing? Because back then, uh, the property prices for low-rise homes in the GTA tanked by about 20, 30% in some areas. And some of my clients, we, we were all basically looking, oh my God, what's gonna happen next, right? Because we are like thinking, is this going to be like the next thing that happened back in the States where everything's gonna crash by 50%? And during that time, my clients took a step back and my clients come first always, right? But some of them took a step back because they got nervous. Yeah. And when they got nervous, I'm like going, okay, well, you buggers, if you're not gonna buy, I'm gonna go buy, buy it. So again, and, and I proved to them time and time again that it was a great move. Because I think you'll see that all the time. The biggest time we saw that was 2008. Um, we had we, Nick and I had a list of about 10 investors we were working with back then that said, when there's a real estate correction, we are absolutely going to buy. We are, you guys are overpaying. They told us, these 10 people told us you guys are overpaying in 2006 and early 2007 for properties. Zero and 2008, buck. no, we had out of the list of 10 yeah. who absolutely told us they would buy when crap started hitting the fan. Yeah. We had two out of the 10. And these were 10 that were like 100%. The other eight told us, no, 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 we can't buy now. And it's always been my, I've always used that to say, hey, look, if you can't buy, you're going to have to be able to buy in good times or in bad times because when times are bad, you're psychologically, you're going to be tested and there's going to be no access to credit. Part of the reason the things that times are bad is likely because credit has tightened up. So it'll be harder to qualify for a mortgage. So for example, like in the early 90s, like we were talking about, part of the reason that a recession happened is interest rates spiked up. It was harder to qualify. So if you were waiting for that to happen, it might be harder for you to take action during a period when you think crap is hitting the fan because access to money 
is a little harder to get. And then psychologically, you have to play your own mind games and see if you can beat yourself sure. and talking yourself out of buying the property. So I've always kind of believed that the people who say they'll buy, like the people, your friends who are telling you, Felix, ah, now's not the right time. I'm going to buy when the crap hits the fan. Uh, uh-uh, They're just never going to buy. So we've always just believed, hey, look, you can't time it. You'll never time it. You always have to get in. That's why I think we, we are a big supporter in what you've been able to do is you get in anytime you can find a property that can carry itself. Just go in and grab the property yeah. because you never know if now we're at the bottom or if now we're at the top or if we're in the middle or where we are. Just if you can get your hands on good assets, get get the property, hug it and hold on to it for dear for dear life. Because there's going to be ups and downs and you're going to have to survive in them both. Well, I t- I'll tell my clients this uh, all the time, right? Because I, I'm not really a, I don't really consider myself as a real estate agent. I'm more like a financial advisor with, with dealing with real estate assets. And I usually tell them one thing. Well, we should be clear. You don't consider yourself, but you do have your real estate license. Oh, yeah, for sure. you don't consider sure. yourself a real estate agent because no, you're looking no. at it as a vehicle to really make money with. Correct. It, it just enables me, provides me with the access in order to source opportunities for my clients, right? But I'm, I consider myself way more than that. If anybody calls me just a real estate agent, like uh, I'd shoot myself essentially, right? So that's not why I got into this business. I'm there to basically help my clients achieve their, their goals uh, and live the life that they want to live. Um, but uh, t- to my point, you know, even if you were to basically buy a piece of property today, let's say it's $300,000 and it cash flows, What's the worst thing that can happen if you hold on to it for 30 days, uh, 30 years? You know, 80% of your mortgage is going to be paid out by your tenants, right? And worst case scenario, you end up with a $300,000 inflation-adjusted asset that's spitting out the same inflation-adjusted cash flow, minimum inflation-adjusted cash flow, right? And then from a, from a financial planning perspective, real easy. If it's spitting out $1,200 a month, you need uh, $12,000 a month to live la vida loca, no problem, buy 10 properties. In fact, buy 11. The 11th property, the cash flow on that one is going to be the maintenance fund for all the other ones. And that's it, right? You never have to even uh, bank on appreciation at all. Zero. I think it's tough for people to imagine that they could buy 10 properties, though. You know, they get True. a lot of people will get hung up and say, well, I'll never be able to get to 10. So I'm not going to start. I was and the same I, way. Yeah, yeah, we all were. And I think that you have to kind of just focus on just getting your first property and surviving that and then let it kind of go from there. If you try to have all the answers on how you're going to buy 10 today. The rules by the time you get there will change anyway. So whatever you can, whatever you can craft today probably won't even apply from a qualification point of view. But, uh, but you're right. It's such a good point. Yeah. I, I say that basically being a real estate investor is better than any MBA you can possibly get out there. I mean, the education you get being even, even your first real estate and, and it takes about five years. You have to go into the trenches for five years. You know, after five years, things start getting interesting and you start see, seeing the bear bearing your fruits, essentially, fruits of your labor. But the first five years are usually the toughest. There's no money. Yeah, there's you, nothing You cut there. your teeth in yeah, there. Yeah. You got you got toilets basically yeah. that need replacing. At this stage, I mean, I'm like going, okay. You have this no is, contacts, no handyman that you trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you're like freaking out, flying by the seat of your pants. Every but, problem you think the world's coming to an end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, I was actually, a couple of weeks ago, I was out with a client and uh, one of my tenants texted me going, oh, the furnace is making a funny sound. So I I go, he goes, do you know of any HVAC specialist? I, I go, here you go. Text him over that. Go set up a mutually agreeable time for him to come up and do a service call. And, so, and the funny thing is, my client was asking me, so do you manage all these properties yourself? I go, yeah, here you go. One minute. And I, and I, and, and, uh, I go, tell, tell the HVAC guy to just send me the bill. Done. Yeah, but until you've been through that, it took you yeah, a long time for to, sure. be able to get handle that in one minute. Hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, yeah. But but it's also the value that you provide to your clients as well, right? Totally. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like I had to deal with all that crap, but so my clients yeah. don't have to now. Yeah. They can basically, you know, get get my 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 list of you know a team type of contractors out there, and uh, so they don't have to worry about the rest because that's the apprehension that a lot of people what, have. What are you finding? What's the apprehension? Sorry, I cut you off. Well, there. the fact that it's far away, that for some strange reason, people feel like they need to change the toilet. And my question is okay, if you own the property in the GTA, you live in the GTA, and a toilet goes, are you going to replace it yourself or are you going to get a trade to actually do it? <laughs> right? Most people will say, yeah, I'm going to contact the plumber or handyman or whatever. I'm like, going, well, this is no different anyway. Right? You're, it's, you're still making that phone call. The difference is you're making the phone call to somebody in that local city. That's basically it. Yeah, some people, yeah, for some reason, and Nick and I are the same. Obviously, we'll buy properties wherever there's a good opportunity. And um, some people just want to have them close. They want to be able to drive by them almost instantly. And I, we say the same thing. Why would you, if that means you're going to buy a property that's a, a riskier asset and, the asset and the return isn't as good, why wouldn't you just go a little bit further? Like you're not driving by all these properties all the time. For sure. You know? That should be the main driver is basically how much uh, risk versus return, right? Maximize your risk, minimize your return. And if you're basically dealing, dealing in a frothy market, as Toronto is, 
your risks are much higher than the returns that you're basically generating on these things. And in a lot of respects, a lot of people don't realize this, but some of these municipalities, the, the property prices have doubled in, in the last four years, which is better, in some cases, better than some of the areas in the GTA. Even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, just, I just hate talking about that just because you never know if there's a correction coming oh, and stuff 100%, like that. But you're 100%, right, absolutely. 100%. And we're maybe guilty of downplaying that a little bit because we don't talk about that, but you're right. I mean, property- It has to cash flow first. Yeah, yeah. Pure and absolutely. simple, like like I said, worst, take the worst case scenario, it never goes up at all. But obviously we were looking for opportunities where there's great um, um, great opportunity for appreciation yeah, yeah, as well. Absolutely. But that's not what's driving our decision making. Of course, we want to make sure that those, those areas are going to appreciate as well, just as well as Toronto, if not better. But yeah, you're right. I don't basically deal with that anyway, and that's why I say. Well, it's tempting to talk about it, though. Hey, like this property is, that we bought for 195000 in Hamilton is now like 450000 But you're right. It's just I bring it up because a lot of people have this misconception that the properties don't do as well as they do in locally in the GTA. Yeah, got it. Okay, yeah, that's exactly. that's the only yeah, reason yeah, why I bring totally. it up. Not, not, but I tell them, yeah, anything could happen in the market at any given time. Invest with that in mind. And as long as you can weather the storm, your cash flow is your insurance policy. You collect your coupon while you wait the market to turn. Yeah, and you should expect the storm. There's going to be storms. Absolutely. Like this shouldn't, like if, if people get into this thinking there's not going to be a storm, I mean, you're kind of like missing the whole thing. Like there's going to be a storm. This is all about surviving those storms, right? Where uh, do, you, do you have some favorite areas right now that you like? It sounds like Niagara region, maybe. I've been in Niagara region for about uh, close to three years now. Um, where I'm going to go, we're, we're right at the, this is the, this is the interesting part because right now we're really at the cusp of the greater goal, the outskirts of the greater golden horseshoe. Uh, so the question is, what's going to happen afterwards? Uh, one of the other things I'm actually, I like to diversify, but I like to, you know, the whole diversification thing, but I like to diversify geographically, obviously, as an investor, uh, not within the asset classes because I like my real estate. Um, I think I'm actually considering actually making a move into the U.S. market uh, to kind of do what I would. Where would you go? Um, uh, currently in early stages of researching Arizona. Uh, the Phoenix Maybe market. We can get you to move to Arizona, and you can be the contact and team down in Arizona. With with weather that we have been having yeah, lately, yeah, it's, it's definitely appealing for sure. But but again, to your point, again, you're looking at the same type of drivers, right? You're looking where is the employment going? Where's you know that does not change. It, it, that does not change irrespective of which country you look into. You know the, the access to land. Uh, you know how easy it is to rent. You know all of all of that stuff. Basically, you have to take a look at. It does not change whether you're investing in in in, in Toronto, in Vancouver, in Arizona, in China, whatever the case may be. Right. You're bringing up an interesting point because now we are all over the Greater Toronto Hamilton kind of Golden Horseshoe area, and I think what'll happen is people who've invested for some time always think it's going to get harder in this capacity. Here's what I mean: In the '90s, you could buy a Toronto condo, and you could make it work. Right. And then it got harder. You couldn't just buy a, any old Toronto condo and make it cash flow. You had to like buy right in the downtown core and kind of buy in some trendy neighborhoods. And then the prices got started going higher and you had to go outside of the city. And that was considered, quote unquote, harder. And then for those of us investing outside of the city, you could buy any old single family home and it would cash flow. And then it got, quote unquote, harder. And you had to do second suites or student rentals to make them a good cash flow and that kind of stuff. It's getting tougher. Yeah. It's getting tougher. But for people, the good news is for people entering the game now, they don't know any different. Different. So like to them, your your idea of land banking like that, that you're talking about, that's just like normal. And I see more and more of that opportunity happening here where you're going to have to look for little infill projects where you buy like a rental property that might be on the corner and you could subdivide it and build another property on it. And there could be great potential in it. It is just harder than what we had to do in the past. Right. Sure. And uh, it's funny. Each generation will have its kind of distinct, distinct memory of what, how easy it was. Like for me, the, the pinnacle of ease would be buying a single family home in Hamilton for like two hundred thousand bucks, like fully detached single family home. And fully then, done up. Yeah, fully. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No renovations whatsoever. <laughs> and then taking six weeks to rent it out and complaining. Yeah. You know, like, I can't believe I went out there twice a week for six weeks to for rent out that. $1,400. Yeah, yeah, yeah. $1,400 and 1450 to rent that probably. Oh, my gosh. That was tough work. Now you look back on those days, you're like, oh, my gosh. So I 10. really believe to, no, but here's, I guess here's the point. I really think what we're going through now, even though you and I think it's harder because we have that, we have that history. Um, Ten years from now, people will look at what their opportunities are right here today and wish they took some advantage of them. And I know I can sound like a salesman when I say it that way because we obviously own a brokerage, um, but I just do believe it. 
I'm like, I think people 10 years from today will look back at Felix and Tom today and say, oh, those guys had it easy. Look what I'm having to do in the year 2029 on real estate in this area. Well, look at the dynamics. Again, it comes down to economics 101 at the end of the day. Again, you can either turn off the demand or you can increase the supply. Uh, so and the demand doesn't look it's get, like it's getting turned it doesn't on. Look like, and the supply does not look like it's going to make it. And even if the supply were to be turned on today, the problem is the pricing for that supply is so um, out, of, out of reach for the vast majority of the p people out here that there's going to be a natural constriction of new supply, affordable supply in the marketplace. And the government is basically telling us we're not interested in providing it. So in the absence of private investors who have actually been holding up the fort, if they leave the market, there's going to be this huge, huge vacuum basically down there. So the and the government does not want to basically deal with it anymore. So the question is, what happens then? You know, and and that's kind of why why I kind of go into these things. You know, jump two feet in, going not not an issue. If I can make a property cash flow today, um, and just hold on to it, I can only do well with it. Felix, thank you for doing this. You're going to have to come back on and give us updates, especially if you do anything in Arizona or in for the U.S., sure. but even stuff you're doing here. We'll have you back on again to chat. Really appreciate you sharing your insights as a Canadian real estate investor who actually immigrated here to this country and now taking advantage of all the immigration that continues to have uh, to happen here. So uh, good on you, man. Really, thank you for sharing the story. Where can people find you? Is there a URL, an email? What would you like to give out? So uh, I have a Facebook group called uh, cloud9life.ca and a website called cloud9life.ca as well. So cloud number nine? The number nine. Cloud9life.ca. Cloud9life.ca or you can reach me at felix at rockstarbrokers.com or felix at cloud9life.ca as well. Um, always great uh, chatting up with people and sharing great ideas and uh, meeting your fellow investors and novices alike. Thanks, Felix. Appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me. Hey everyone, it's Tom Krads again. So hopefully you enjoyed that chit chat with Felix. He's a good guy. Um, there's a lot more to go through with him. Afterwards, I realized there's just a ton more to ask Felix. So I'm sure we'll have him back at some point to get his opinions on various other subject matters. Hopefully you enjoyed that chat. If you're listening to this and you want to understand how to become a Rockstar Inner Circle member or what benefits that we've put together for Rockstar Inner Circle members, you can check out all the details at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. Thanks everybody for listening to this podcast. Thanks for all the feedback we're getting. We're trying to put out a lot of different conversations because at what, whatever point you are at in your career, in your business, in your investing, different people that we bring on may have different insights that just exactly match with what you're thinking. And sometimes it may not, but that's okay too, because they'll have different things that you haven't thought about before, different ways of looking at investing, the world, business that may be helpful to you in some capacity. That's what we're aiming for. Ultimately, we want everyone to live life on their terms and that's that's why we're doing this podcast in some small way. Hopefully listening to this kind of stuff is helping you live life on the terms you want to live it. That is basically what we are all about and why we're investing in real estate. It's for the bigger goal of living life on our own terms. And with that, we'll leave this episode. Um, thank you for listening until next time, your life, your terms.